Hello everyone, I'm Sweekriti, the host of Core User to UX Podcast, India's first podcast dedicated to user and UX research. I'm extremely fortunate to start Core's journey with none other than Debbie Levitt. Debbie Levitt is the founder of the customer and user experience consulting firm Delta CX, an organization which has helped transform UX processes in companies like Sony, Oracle, Sephora, Salesforce, and many more. Debbie is one of the veterans in the UX field. Working since 1995, she is one of those few people who know every nook and corner of the UX universe. The foundation of UX was set by the likes of Don Norman and Jacob Nielsen. People like Debbie grew the field to what it is today. Not only this, she has continuously shared her learnings, experiments and discoveries with the world. She continues to share her UX wisdom in this episode with me. So let's dive right in. Hi, Debbie. Welcome to the podcast. It's really overwhelming to have you here because you are one of the veterans in the UX field and the things you have achieved are just, um, I mean, especially seeing the time period in which you achieve those things is just uh, mind-boggling. So thanks. Oh, stop. (laughs) (laughs) I mean it. I mean it. Well, thank you. Let's start with the first question. So okay. I would like to start with one of Delta CX's motto, which is, you know, being omni-channel, omni-device, omni-touchpoint. I wanted to know why have you stressed so much on the omni-quality of it? Like, what is the reason behind that? Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, I think the issue is that sometimes people think that CX or UX is just about devices. It's just about what do we see on screens or what do people see on websites? And they forget the interconnectedness of uh, all of the customer experiences. Because remember, the customer experience isn't just, I went to your website, I left your website. There's a much larger thing going on here. So, for example, we have the trigger, which is why does the customer need to possibly do business with you today? Then we have what I call orbiting. Now it's like, hmm, are they going to do business with you or are they they going to pick someone else? They have a decision-making process. They have priorities and criteria. And, of course, the more we understand those, the more likely we might be to grab that customer. Then they're in your ecosystem. Now that could be a website, an app, a store, a location, a service, an experience. And then after they're done with that, there's some sort of action they need to take. Very rarely is it, well, I'm done on that website. That's it. Nothing else to do. Certainly, if you've purchased something, you might be waiting to get it. Um, Even if you bought education, now you have to take the course. Like, there's always something that happens after the moments that people are in our system. And so we have to remember that full end-to-end journey, and the, and the journey happens everywhere. So if people have a terrible experience on your website, do you think they're going to download your app? If they have a bad experience in your store, are they going to go to your website? Maybe to complain, and that's about it. So we have to remember that these are all really connected into our customer. They're one just continuous experience with our company or our brand. And so I'm trying to really stress the idea of omni-channel, omni-device, and omni-touchpoint, that every moment that we're interacting with our customer or potential customer in one way or another, 
is a chance to make them loyal or a chance to make them run screaming. So, you know, what are we going to do? We've got to make sure that we are constantly rebuilding that loyalty because people are not loyal. If they don't like something you're doing, they will find someone better. I'm glad you brought that point up because, uh, you know, you, it's all about that one single possibility or chance and how does one grab that? How does one manifest that into, you know, something tangible? Um, can you tell me where you achieved something like that? Where there was, you know, a slight chance and you turned it into something like, damn, boom. That was the possibility we were looking for and we got it. Oh, you know, that's a hard one because I feel like every time I'm brought into a company, I have to talk them out of terrible ideas instead of moving forward with good ideas. Um, uh, gosh, I would have to pull out maybe a story, uh, a lot, an old story. And, and if you're getting into UX, this story is just a slice of what real work looks like. I, I was working at an agency in San Francisco and we had a customer who wanted the website, for some reason, to um, feel more like when you called up the company. So now personally, I'd make the website better and then I would fix the, the call center, but they wanted to, the website to match the call center experience. And they had laid out, what, does it, what is it like to call us? What questions do we ask you in what order? And they wanted a website that kind of did the same thing. And they didn't give a lot of guidance. And so I, I looked at some of my coworkers and they said, just make the best thing you can. And, you know, they wouldn't let us do research or anything. So this is my best guess. So I created what I thought was the best approach to uh, these questions and this information. And the client came back and was like, no, 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 no. You know, we don't want it in this order. Legal departments will never approve this. No, 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 do it in this order. And I said, oh, this, your order doesn't make sense. You're asking people very personal medical questions right at the start. We haven't even warmed these people up. Let's warm them up. They said, no, no, we have to ask these impersonal medical questions first. So long story short, we eventually took this to uh, usability testing. I didn't get to do the testing. They hired an outside company. And, but I was watching it live and remote. And what the testing company decided to do was show people the company's preferred design first. And then this, I didn't know they were going to do this. They showed them my first design, the one that I thought was better. And they kind of tried to figure out which one was the better design. And you will be not surprised to hear that eight out of eight people in the moderated testing preferred my design. And um, I was just kind of like, yeah. But even funnier, uh, I think seven or eight out of eight people said, I would never use a service like this. And to me, that was the more important learning from the testing, but the company decided to ignore that. And they uh, eventually went out of business because they didn't take the close look at whether or not they were providing a, a meaningful service to people, and it turned out they weren't. Um, curse of the startup, they had a big idea and it was a bad idea and nobody was willing to tell them this. So um, I think that's a little bit of an example, though a little bit of a long story, but this, hey, if you're getting into UX, this is going to happen to you too, where you have to try to design something that best matches the user. It's always better when you're working from real data, but in, in this case, I wasn't able to talk to the target customers, so I just had to go with what I thought was best, which is 
not the best way to do UX, but at least it went through testing. And the thing about the story is that this won't die with time. Like there are still companies like that who refuse to listen what they don't want to hear. So it's not about the, you know, this happened in like older times. It happens now as well. So coming back to your motto, like as a user experience researcher, what are the things that I should uh, take care of or, you know, be very cautious and careful about so that I can inculcate this omni quality in my research because being a ux researcher you have to you know know everything about your business you have to be in touch with everything every aspect of your business so how does one bring that omni quality in their tangible output they are giving yeah super question i think that for research one of the mistakes i see often and especially from research newbies is to research something too narrowly like for example they bring people to a certain page and they say look at this what do you think or come over here do you like this and and that's not the right way to research anyway but i think the problem is they look too narrowly at a small piece of a larger experience and i think the idea of uh omni channel omni device omni touch point reminds us that you know before they got to this little piece something came before that and something's going to come after that and i tell people the better way to say you're doing the type of research where you have to watch someone on a website or in an app or a system or maybe in a store is to try to see the complete experience and the pieces you don't see you have to ask them about so we did some research earlier this year for an e-commerce company now we can't be in people's internal meetings when they decide what they're going to buy and what their budget is and things like that but we can ask them about that we can say before you go to these websites or before you go to google and search for these types of things to possibly buy what's your process you know how do what are your criteria uh who has to approve this purchase how much do you usually spend now we're getting into the, some behavior stuff. Now we're really going to learn more, and this can feed our company's strategies towards the user. So I would say in research, be careful of trying to research too narrow a piece of the task. That's why I'm always talking about task analysis on my show. We have to take, a, and that's the Delta CX YouTube channel, everybody. Um, we have to take a look at the user's steps, and then we have to take a look at where those steps go right or wrong for them. Because we don't really, we're not, we're not going to have a good shot at improving things or completely redefining things in a better way if we don't fully understand those steps and what's going right or wrong. So I would say, as a researcher, try to learn where they are moving between channels and devices. So, it's, for example, think about people who book hotel rooms. Sometimes they go to a website and they book a hotel room. Then they get to the hotel, they might download the hotel's app because it unlocks the door, because it orders room service, because it does something special. And now you're omni-channel, and now you're omni-device. We have the laptop, we have the phone, we have a website, we have an app. And then, of course, we have the service. We have the in-person experience of the person in the hotel. What does the hotel look like? What does it smell like? How is it designed? How's the food? How are the workers? 
that's a touch point as well. You know, UX sometimes forgets about that. People who study UX think about screens, screens, screens. But part of a user or customer experience is human-human interaction. <laughs> it's not just human-computer interaction. There's human-human interaction. And, and we can think we often think about that with, like, customer support. You have to contact customer support. There's human-human interaction. But there's human-human interaction in any business that has a service. So, for example, um, your accountant, that's a service. That's a human interaction. And all of these things can be researched. They can be architected. They can be designed. And they can be tested and improved. So I would say as a researcher, make sure you're asking people really open questions and make sure you are writing your research plan so that you learn when they are in different systems or when they interact with humans from your organization. If you work for IKEA or a store or something like that, if you work for a startup that does deliveries, when are they dealing with the system? When are they dealing with people? And all of these are part of the picture. Usually in startups, it's the UX designer who is also doing the job of the researcher. Because maybe in larger setups, we they have... don't know any better because they're <laughs> cheap. <laughs> so um, how does a designer... So the designer who is doing the research is more likely to, you know, put all of it in the design, you know, all the right questions and whatever came out of it. But if a designer is, gets uh, the information from a researcher, what are the kind of questions the designer should ask so that they make sure that whatever useful insight came out of the research, it is implemented in our experience? So what are the questions the UX designer should ask to establish this omni-quality? Yeah, so I would say normally, no offense to anybody, a good researcher will prepare documents and artifacts and other information to deliver to the designer and share with the designer and talk to the designer about so that hopefully the designer doesn't have questions. Really a best case scenario is that a researcher, whether that's you as the researcher or a separate person as the researcher, that the we have to remember that in a UX process, Every step is supposed to set the next step up for success. If research doesn't set a designer up for success, you did the research wrong. So no offense. So the, the idea is that the designer shouldn't have to, we say, pull teeth to try to get the information they need. The researcher should say, here's the research we did. Here's the things that we learned. Here's a task analysis that I made. Here's a customer journey map. Here's a service blueprint. And then here's the optimized version. Here's what the future state of this might look like. And again, those aren't solutions. Those are just ideas and suggestions. So they might not have sketches. You know, the researcher doesn't have to sketch things, but they could say, hey, it looks like here's where people's pain points are. Here's some opportunities for us to uh, improve something or really redefine something. So the idea is that the, the, uh, the work that the research does should be setting the designer up for success. Of course, if the designer has questions, they go back to the researcher. But another good way for these two people to partner together is when the researcher is planning the research, go to the designer. 
see if they have any questions, anything they're wondering about the user's experience, the user's journey, the user's decisions, because that can definitely play into the design later. So good for researcher and designer, especially when they're separate people, to collaborate a little bit on the research plan so that the researcher just has another set of eyes saying, ah, you know what, we should probably find this out. Um, and that way they can partner up uh, a little bit. But yeah, hopefully you're not, um, hopefully people aren't going, okay, I did research. And then the designer's going, uh, mm, <laughs> uh. So uh, yeah, it would be, th these are great opportunities for collaboration. And uh, because ultimately the UX designer is, at least in my opinion, should probably design one channel at a time. Like I wouldn't necessarily design the website and the app and something else all at the same time. I normally try to stick to one thing at a time, test it, improve it, and then move on to the next thing. I mean, our, our days are busy enough and we get so little work done because of all the crazy crap at companies, it doesn't make sense to try to design all these different systems at the same time. So so, uh, so don't forget to be omni-channel and things like that, but you know, don't drive yourself crazy and think that you can design all of these at the same time. Make one thing amazing and then move to the next thing. That's great insight, like especially for people who will be starting out. And uh, with that, I come to our next question. One of your brilliant articles titled The Coming CX UX Correction and Shift defines two types of job in the field. The job A, which is mostly about, you know, UA aesthetics, visual designing, the person we just referred to who is responsible for the screens and they get information and input from someone. While job B, their job is to know the user to its core, setting up a foundation for the product, and then finally building and designing the entire product on the basis of their understanding and insights. So this distinguish, uh, this differentiation, when I spoke out loud, it feels very you know logical and natural. But when we come down to the real world, employers don't know what they want. So what is the reason for that? Yeah, so just to clarify, I would say job A is a little bit more of an order taker. So it's not so much that they're responsible for screens because job A and job B can both do screens. The difference to me is that what I'm calling job A in my article is somebody who is basically told by their coworkers, yeah, we already know what we want. Just make us some screens so engineering can build it. And they end up just part of the assembly line and they don't really get to be a problem finder or a problem solver, but that's okay because some people's personalities say, you know what, I just am happier when someone just tells me what they want and I can give them what they want. But then we have other personalities who say, I don't want to be told what to make. I want to learn what's going wrong here and I want to solve that. And, and I think that's what I'm calling job B. So like we are, I see myself as job B. So job B is like the, the detectives, the investigators, the critical thinkers, and the people who definitely don't want to be told, just make us some screens. 
And so I think those are the difference. But you're right. The problem is that a lot of employers don't know there's a difference. And so they think that if we just get some UX people, we're just going to get some pretty screens and engineering can build them. And they don't understand that there's a whole job B world out there uh, of people who really want to make a difference and want to take the time. It's really about time. Want to take the time to uh, observe our users or potential users, interview them, really make sense of what they're doing. And too many companies just want to rush out a thing. Just to say we rushed out a thing. Just because a book in 2011 said rush out things. I don't know how we haven't grown out of this yet. So I don't think, you know, I'm fighting for this to change in companies. and uh, But I'm not sure this is going to change. I don't think enough people are fighting this. And so right now we still have these jobs where it can say UX designer and it could mean wonderful problem finding and problem solving. And it can say UX designer and it can mean, hey, you've got two hours, get us some wireframes. Just guess. And we don't know what we're getting into. And that's why it's so important for candidates. As you start applying for jobs, you need to ask questions during the interview. And we did a whole episode on this on my Delta CX YouTube channel, episode 129, everybody. And um, you can find, just go to YouTube, write Delta CX 129. It'll probably come up. And we did a whole episode on what you should ask in interviews to make sure that you're joining a company that genuinely cares about the user experience, that is going to do research before stabbing at solutions, that isn't going to try to do UX design by committee, by workshop, by sticky note workshop adventure. And so I think that there they're, the only thing we can do is just keep talking about this and make sure employers understand that these are different jobs. Years ago, employers did understand that, uh, that they understood that there were some people who were production designers and their strength, their magic power was, tell me what you need and I'm going to make it for you. And that takes talent and skill and all kinds of things. And, and I don't have that. I can't, I can't do that. I don't like just making what someone said. I'm a different personality. And then you have the other personality that says, let me get to the bottom of your problem. So I think we just have to keep speaking up about this. No one's going to know job A and job B. That's just my article. But I will very often tell people I'm not an artist. I'm not a production designer. I'm a problem finder. I'm a problem solver. And I'm a change agent. Don't hire me if you don't want someone who's going to try to really work hard to make things better. I'm so glad that you brought a very important point up that is rushing through things, especially because in today's culture, I'll say, there is this blind run towards agility and such concepts. So what are the kind of questions I should ask myself as an organization and make sure that I'm not rushing through things? And at the same time, I'm not wasting time at one thing. So like the sweet spot. Of course. You have to balance it. Yeah, of course. Nobody wants to spend a year before coming out with their product. You know, they want to come out with something faster. I get that. But rushing out poor quality is not going to make you the market leader, is not going to make you a successful startup. 
And um, I understand that startup investors might be looking for people who can create products, but that was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, startup investors were like, hmm, can these people even make software and release things? Now we keep hearing product market fit. If you live in the startup world, all you hear is product market fit. And that's really about UX and customer centricity. It's are we building the right thing for the people who we think will be our customers? Now, ultimately, that's about doing the right research and doing the right testing. The problem is that a lot of companies, uh, startups, don't invest in UX. They think if we just make a thing and it's pretty and we put it out there, We'll get funding, we'll get customers, whatever. But that may be a short-term success. Where's the long-term success? And once people get over the initial hump of, hey, this app looks pretty, let's give it a try. If it is crappy to use, if it is difficult to learn, if it's got bad user experience stuff in it, the four horsemen of bad UX, like I say, frustration, confusion, disappointment, and distraction, if your system is frustrating to people, congratulations, it's pretty. <laughs> and so I think that some things that companies can ask themselves is, how are we measuring customer satisfaction? Are we measuring it by the complaints we get, the support tickets, our app ratings, our tweets about us? And I find that most companies don't want to measure these things correctly because if they measure them correctly, it's going to be bad news. And so, for example, um, oh, I just put this on, I think I put it on LinkedIn a few days ago. I don't know if you saw it, but there was a company that released a new version of their app and I took a screenshot of some of their reviews because they were like all one-star reviews. People hated the app. People wrote crazy comments about how terrible the new app is and what the hell are you doing? I found comments in English. I found comments in Italian. I, I mean, there were just comments like from the whole world hating this app. Congratulations, you released an app. Maybe you released it fast. Is anybody looking at these things? What I find many companies do is even if they do look at these things, they assume that the people who left bad reviews, well, you know, they're annoying. They're annoying people. They're hard to please. They're not going to be happy. You know, who cares about them? They, so I would say startups, if you find yourselves making up stories or making up excuses about why we don't want to listen to some of these people we thought were our customers, then be careful because you're starting to get into a bad place where you're going to put yourself in an echo chamber of fake positivity. Hey, I like my idea. Look at these good reviews. This is great. And if you're, I always say, if you hear things are good, you're asking the wrong questions or you're asking the wrong people. There's always something that can be better about everything. My website could be better. My hair could be better. I mean, like nothing is ever perfect. Everything can always be improved. But if you're just collecting the happy ratings and you're just looking at the positive side of things, congratulations on all the sunshine, but you're not looking at reality. So I think startups have to do a better job measuring customer satisfaction. They have to do a better job uh, including research to watch people using the product. And then they have to be honest with themselves about what's not working and be willing to change it. Agile is supposed to be about change. So where's all the change? 
that makes a lot of sense and uh, then again it all boils down to the kind of people you are hiring so again we'll keep this startup context and uh, as we were talking about job a and job b job a being the order takers and job b the problem finders how important is it for a startup to distinguish between these two job profiles like should they be clear cut from the beginning or can they figure their way out in the process yeah it's hard for startups to tell the difference because in general startups don't understand ux and so for example you know if i'm looking at two cvs or two websites who's the better doctor i don't know you know i don't know until i start working with that doctor and i see if they're nice to talk to if they seem to diagnose problems well if they seem to come up with a good treatment you know, sometimes you have to work with people and then go oh oh i don't like this doctor like someone get me a new doctor the problem is that because many startups don't understand ux let's say hypothetically they hired the worst ux worker on the planet let's say this person is just terrible at ux whatever for whatever reason we don't even have to make up a reason let's just imagine a world where a startup has hired a terrible person a person who's terrible at ux how will they know what does that look like what does it look like to be bad at ux how will they know i could tell the difference i'm sure some of the guests i've had on my show can tell the difference the average person is not going to be able to tell the difference between a good ux practitioner and a bad ux practitioner and i find that sometimes at companies when there's a bad ux practitioner they just go you know what we probably don't need ux and they either keep that person or fire that person or reassign that person to something they think they'll be better at but then they go hey you know what we were probably pretty good at just designing this ourselves we probably just don't even need ux and that's why i've spent so much time fighting bad ux education and people getting into ux for not the best reasons because it's you know you can get fired sure it's not fake it until you make it but you run the risk that you leave companies with the impression that ux isn't that important we probably didn't need this now they're not going to now you might get fired now they're not going to grow the team and so i think the problem is that startups don't even know what they don't even know and i always wish that they would um that a startup's first hire should be a very experienced ux professional and that way if they get a good one and unfortunately there are people with experience who are still not good at ux or have bad personalities i mean everybody's out there but at least if you're hiring a very experienced person five or more years of specialized ux experience not yeah i'm really an artist and sometimes i make screens then at least you have a better chance but very often startups like to be cheap and they say well let's just find somebody right out of school but yet they don't hire other positions right out of school are they hiring developers right out of school sometimes they are sometimes they're not but the problem is ux is the type of thing that takes years to get good at and while the person right out of school is passionate and excited and cheap 
they shouldn't be the only person doing UX at the company. There's still a lot that they have to learn. So my main thing to startups is your very first hire should be someone senior, five or more years of experience. Your second hire can be someone more junior and they can partner up and the senior is there to oversee the more junior person's work and help them learn and help them level up. But I think when startups start out with an inexperienced UX designer, it's a, it's a gamble because we that person may not yet have the experience and strength to really know the right things to do in different situations. And that's just normal. That's not like, ooh, they're bad at this. They'll get better at this. But that's one thing that, that, is, uh, that happens when people are new. And it's something that'll change over time. I feel that all these points came from seeing all these things being played in front of you. So maybe you could share an anecdote or maybe how many companies or startups you saw fail because they gambled on their UX person. That would be great. Yeah, I, yeah, sure. I can certainly tell stories about that. And about the main stories I see related to startups are startups that don't have a strong idea, but because they surrounded themselves with people who like the idea, they never allow in the information that says this isn't a good idea. So I'll give you an example. If you wanted to go to the beach with somebody and you live near a beach, you might, you might send them a WhatsApp message. You might send them an email. You might send them some other type of message, telegram, whatever. And you might say, hey, let's go to the beach. And they say, well, let's ask some more friends. And so you um, make a group WhatsApp message or you send an email out. Hey, let's all go to the beach. I met a startup some years ago that said, we're building an app that's going to help surfers coordinate going surfing. And my thought was, nobody needs that. <laughs> you know, we, we have so many ways of coordinating a group of people to do things. If you wanted to go to the beach with friends, you don't need a special app. Mm. And I said, I said to them, I'm sorry, but I don't think anybody needs this. And they said, oh, no, no, it's really good. We spoke to surfers and they said this would definitely be good. And I was like, why aren't they just coordinating over WhatsApp or, or some other messaging thing? Like, no, no, we asked them and, the, and this is good. And I think so, I, to me, the biggest warning I have for, for um, startups would be this product market fit stuff because the product market fit stuff ends up dictating what happens with UX at the company. If someone at a startup says, we think we want to make something for surfers. We think surfers are a great market of diverse people with spare money. I wonder what we should build for them. Maybe it's an app to coordinate surfing. Can you do some research? Learn how surfers coordinate now and see if there's a little opportunity for us to make an app and make some money here. Fantastic. That's the way to do it. But what normally happens is somebody goes, hey, we should make an app that will help surfers coordinate. And somebody else goes, yeah, oh, I love that. And somebody else goes, yeah, you know, when I used to be a surfer, it was just so hard. I had to like, what's up, everybody? Oh, my God, it was terrible. And somebody else goes, yeah. And now you have this echo chamber. And then what happens is when the UX person gets hired, they go, make an app that coordinates surfers. So there's a very big difference between we've already decided what this is, now make it, which is called being feature-driven, and we think we want to go in a certain direction, 
but let's be research informed. Let's learn from research and data the right directions to go, the wrong directions to go. That's being task oriented. We're thinking more about the user's task, which might be coordinating going surfing or something else. And we're saying, how can we best serve that task? And is there room in the market for us? Or is there already somebody who's doing such a great job that it would be really hard to compete against them? So these to me are some of the key things that startups face that I think they're messing up. Before you can even bring in that UX person, you have to be the type of startup that is willing to say, we might be going in the wrong direction. And I'd rather learn that early. This isn't an ego trip for me. I'd rather learn in week 10 that surfers don't need us. And I'd rather learn what surfers do need. Or I'd rather learn there's a different group of people that's having trouble coordinating a thing. So, you know, maybe there's a problem with schools coordinating a school trip. Okay, hey schools, how do you coordinate school trips to get the moms and the dads involved and the kids involved and the permission and maybe there's something there. I, I don't know. But you have to be willing to ask these questions and you have to be willing to hear this idea sucks. This idea doesn't seem to have an audience. And I heard the same thing over and over when I lived near San Francisco and I used to go to all these Silicon Valley meetups for startups. It was just like the surfer story. I mean, I remember... 2013 or whatever, I remember uh, someone at a startup meetup saying to me, we've got an app that's going to help groups of friends find a bar to go drinking in. And I was like, what's wrong with Google Maps, Yelp, going to your favorite bar? Like there was just a whole list of things you could do if you want to find a bar to go drinking at. Why do I need a special app for this? What problem does this solve? And is it a real problem? That's what UX researchers start by answering. What, what, what's the real problem here? Is there a pain point? Is there a problem? Is there an unmet need that we can address through technology, services, whatever it is? And I think startups get so excited about their own ideas that um, – they're not stopping to consider that. I had a startup as well when I lived in San Francisco. It was to help people be safer. And the funny thing is my idea was awesome. I'm still very proud of it. And there's still nothing like what I created. Um, but nobody wanted it. And part of the reason nobody wanted it was every time I went out and did research, I found that people had a false sense of how safe they were. Hmm. I found that when I spoke to certain people, they were like, yeah, I'm safe. Yeah, I don't, I don't need a system that helps keep me safe or I'm fine. I found if I spoke to women, they had a sense of how not safe they were. I found if I spoke to LGBTQ people, especially if they weren't out of the closet, they had a sense of how not safe they were. But when I spoke to straight men, they were like, I'm fine. And then I tried to speak to real estate agents because I figured, man, real estate agents are always getting murdered in America. They're taking someone they don't know to see a house they've never been to in a neighborhood they don't know. And nobody mm. knows that they're out there. This is super unsafe. So I went to a real estate conference and I started interviewing people I just met walking around. How do you mm. stay safe? And many people said, oh, I've got a gun. 
because this was America. <laughs> and they were like, I've got a gun. And I said, okay, and where's your gun? Oh, it's in my purse. You know, it's in my handbag, my pocketbook. And I said, well, what if the other guy gets his gun out first? And they were like, but I've got a gun. And I was like, well, what if there are three guys and you, and they've already got their guns out? And they were like, but I've got a gun. And I was like, okay, they really can't. There's nothing I can sell them. I might have the greatest safety system in the world, but there's nothing I can sell someone who is telling themselves the story of I'm perfectly safe. This is a classic example where oftentimes people don't know what they need. I always like to quote Henry Ford here who said that if I'd ask people, they would ask for faster horses. <laughs> And I mean, it's people so... People don't know what they need. And you can't ask them. And that's, that's one of the mistakes startup people make and not so great UX researchers or designers doing research. People will say, hey, uh, we made this thing. Is this what you want? Or the even worse version, we're thinking about making a thing. Is this what you want? So I can say, we're thinking about making a cup you can drink out of. Um, Do you, would you want that? And people go, gee, a cup I can drink out of? Sure, I'd like a, a yes, but I like cups. That sounds good. And then people go, yes, everybody wants our cup. Meanwhile, you didn't tell them the cup is the size of their head, you know, <laughs> and, and is really big around and people with small hands will have a hard time grabbing it. And it's really heavy when it's got a liter of fluid in it. You know, it's... Uh, When we ask people to imagine a future decision, we're really doing research badly. And a lot of startups do that. I have a whole slide I do when I do my talks, and it's an example of shitty oh, – sorry, can I say a bad word? It's an yes. example <laughs> of bad questions. <laughs> sorry, everybody. It's an example of bad questions a potential client wanted me to ask, and they were a startup. And they were thinking about making a medical device that would help keep doctors' hands cleaner. And they wanted me to ask questions in my research, but their questions were terrible. Their questions were like, now, so imagine I'm interviewing doctors who might buy or install this device, but the device isn't, hasn't been invented. We don't know what it looks like. So they wanted questions like, is patient, uh, is patient, what was it? Is the patient relationship important? Okay. And I was like, what is that crap? Who's going to say no? I hate my patients. They should all go and die. And then, you know, they had questions like, um, is it important to keep your hands clean? And it was like, oh, God, what is this crap? And then they had questions like, you know, if you bought our device, where would you put it in your examination room? And I was like, no one can see this device. Like, how do they know where they would put it? I don't know how big it is or where I clean my hands or whatever. It was just like a mountain of bad questions. And I could tell that these questions, if we asked people these things and took the answer seriously, it could absolutely send this company in the wrong direction. Ooh, people are going to mount it over here. Oh, yeah, people, uh, blah, blah, blah. It, all the questions were just garbage and the, the client and I chose not to work together because I didn't like where they were going and they didn't like where I was going. Mm. But um, 
that that's to me that's the power of critical thinking we have to be that critical thinker and i said i'm not going to ask people to imagine a future device and if they would buy it and you know they were like and how would you how would you decide if our device is worth the money and i was like they can't even see the device they can't even see the device they don't know what its features are we can't ask them this it makes no sense it's going to be flawed and and take us in the wrong direction but so many startups ask they think they're doing research and they go out and they ask sorry everybody but really bad questions you know i like to joke uh in america we say does my ass look fat in this you know like when you put on pants and they're a little tight and so you ask someone like do i look fat in this outfit is there what answer do you want to hear there most people want to hear no you don't look fat you look great i would rather hear yes you look fat but that's my personality most people want to be polite and that's where culture comes in as well i would say you know you're from the indian culture i think of the indian culture as a, a just a country of polite people you know many people are so polite you're making a funny face at me you're like not people i know um, uh, yeah. i find many people so compared to americans i would say many people are very polite and i think if you don't ask questions the right way you're going to get people telling you what they think you want to hear because they don't want to get in an argument they don't want to disagree they want to be the nice person and and that can be cultural um and and so we have to be careful of of who we're asking and what we're asking them because when you have a culture that prefers politeness um you will definitely get some not true answers and it's not, i've seen this from filipino cultures i've seen this from japanese cultures there are many cultures around the world that really put an emphasis on be polite mm -hmm. be nice to people say yes even if you don't mean yes say yes because it's nice i couldn't agree more it's like that's my experience as well that's why i'm a little bit cautious about politeness and niceness especially after i entered ux research and the space and design so yeah okay one of the most interesting things about you is that you have been working remote since 1995 i mean now that i think about it it is like you knew the future that it is going to be this way and so you chose to st stick with your guns and your personality what it demanded the key question is how did you gain the trust of your clients when you were working this way because even today in indian uh, scenario as well you know offices and startups want their employees to come back back then when there was no sign or signal of remote how did you achieve that trust and how can we use it today yeah thanks I, i you know back in those days we didn't really have video calls because the the bandwidth wasn't good enough for a video call it's only in more recent years that we can have all of these zoom calls and they're not breaking up and the computers exploding and whatever so back in the 90s what i tended to do was i did tend to travel a lot i excuse me i did tend to go to clients offices at least the first time that we were uh thinking about working together i did usually appear personally for some of those early meetings that meant driving that meant flying you know i really tried to make sure they felt comfortable with me but when they felt comfortable with me i would then do the work from home 
And then sometimes we would decide, wow, we really need to meet. And because again, you didn't have Zoom calls and Google Meet and, and GoToMeeting and all these things, um, you kind of had to show up personally. And I think now that we can mostly avoid that and, and emulate some of that face-to-face -face thing with Zoom. Now, that's going to be by personality. Some people like Zoom and they say it's good enough. I feel like I'm with Sweeks. We're kind of hanging out together. This is cool. But other people are like, gee, you know, this feels weird. I'm just looking at my screen and, you know, my dog's behind me or whatever. And it's not comfortable for them. But ultimately, I think it comes down to culture. If a culture says, you know what, we hired good people and we trust them, then you have to follow through on that trust. If the culture says, well, we think we hired good people, but we don't totally trust them, let's figure out how we can check up on them, or let's figure out how we can um, uh, oversee their work more. And I say, I think that's really unnecessary. If you give people clear work and reasonable deadlines, you'll know if they're getting their work done or not. You don't have to hover over them and be a helicopter flying over them all the time. You don't have to check if their green light is on in Slack or whatever. If they are getting their work done by or before their deadlines and it's good quality work, you have good people. You don't have to micromanage them and they don't have to come back into the office. And people say, oh, well, you know, what about discussions at water coolers and i say how much was that really happening where where companies have big offices i've worked in offices that were multiple floors of a building yes there was a place where you could get water but on which floor so if i ultimately had to talk to someone on another floor i can't just go stand where the water is on my floor i'm going to their floor but you know what we didn't go to their floor because we hated walking away from our desk, going to the elevator or going up the stairs. And uh, especially someone who might have a disability, they don't want to go up to the, the 13th floor or 12th floor, whatever. So we started messaging each other. And I think that people who've worked in small offices, okay, that's different. There's 20 of us in the company. It's a startup. It's small. But once that company is bigger and, the, and there's larger space or it's on multiple floors or you've opened up a second office, it's already like working remote. You already have to coordinate with people who you're not sitting next to. And, and I think companies forgot that they could do that because I wasn't um, always going up to the 12th floor when I had a question. I was messaging these people. You know, I was messaging them on Teams or Slack or whatever, whatever we, we what did we have at the time? Hip chat or whatever the heck we had at the time. You know, hey, are you at your desk? Hey, what's up right now? Hey, can I ask you about this thing? And, and so I think that a lot of companies have forgotten. I wrote an article about this a year or two ago, and I think it was called something like your, your remote work domino has already fallen. Like, I think companies forgot that when they hired that freelancer who didn't come into the office, that person worked remotely. When they hired that outside company that did programming for them or QA for them. That was remote work. There's so many times that companies have already done remote work before the pandemic. They just didn't think of it as remote work. They just thought of it as a freelancer or this other team over here. And it's like, 
but they had to work remotely. They had to coordinate with you. They had to make you happy. So I feel like many companies have already done this. And the idea of bringing people together in a room is a little bit not necessary. Depends on, on what you're building. You know, I got turned down for an interview by a car company because they said, whenever we do research and testing, we go sit in cars with people. I said, okay, then clearly I need to be there. I need to be in your office. I need to go sit in a car. I get it. I can't do that remotely. I've got to sit in a car. You are a car company. But I feel like for everything else or, or for many things, especially where the product is digital or the main channel is digital, I can, I can be anywhere. And I think when people think about what they will save on offices and rent and things like that, if you had to fly your worker somewhere, let's say, you know, you're living in Bangalore, you need to go do some research in Mumbai. I have saved so much on rent and electricity and internet and other stuff at the office I didn't open that I can buy you a ticket to Mumbai. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that people forget that there's lots of ways to get this done, even when people need to be in a certain location. And um, I mean, I know that it costs me less to fly from where I live in Italy to America than it used to cost me to fly inside of America. Mm. It costs me less now to get to New Jersey, Florida, California than it did when I was living in America and I was living not in one of those major cities. And so I think people just make too many assumptions and they don't stop and say, what are our internal processes? How can we make these processes better? How can we make workers feel trusted? And how can we just use simple deadlines and simple work reviews to make sure people are getting their work done? Let's check in with people once a week and make sure they're on target. And if they're not on target, figure out why, because chances are the problem isn't remoteness. There's probably some other reason if somebody is not getting their work done. It could be things happening in their personal life. It could be they're waiting for somebody else. Now we have to find the root causes of what's going on. But I think that uh, we can't just act like, oh, my God, everybody back to the office. Even if there were no pandemic, I would say we don't need everybody in the office. I don't miss going to the office. When, when I lived in the San Francisco area, I rode my motorcycle into the office, and I nearly got hit by cars every day. I miss riding my motorcycle, but I do not miss nearly getting hit by cars every day. Well, uh, I guess the water cooler example is a is also an example for a bad experience right there. I mean, who does not install water cooler on every floor? That's just unimaginable. And that is the thing about UX and CX in general, like, the things we are discussing seem so logical when we put it out loud, but when the stuff is actually happening in offices or now in Slack groups, it just doesn't make sense because of echo chambers or whatever may be the reason. So that is also the aim of this episode to, you know, help people identify that are they creating an echo chamber or are they asking themselves the right kind of questions? And that's amazing because you were the best person to have a discussion on that with. So, oh, thanks. Thank I want to give so a quick much. example. Yeah, so I worked at a company that had an iPhone app and an Android app. 
and they found that um, they thought that more of their audience used iPhones. They, that was just something they assumed. Oh, you know, we think more people are using iPhones. And, uh, but their Android app was bad because they had focused more on the iPhone app. They figured, well, more of our audience is iPhone, so we'll have an Android app, but we'll have like a really good iPhone app. And I, I went to a meeting one day and I said, let's press some statistics. So again, this isn't good UX research, this is just numbers. Let's press some numbers on these Android people. Can you tell me, um, do the Android users spend more per sale than the iPhone people? And they said, yeah, actually they do. And do the Android people buy more often than the iPhone people? Yeah, it looks like they do. And, but then why do we have so fewer Android users? I said, maybe because your app is garbage. <laughs> and they said, well, we just assumed our target audience wasn't Android users. We assumed our target audience has money and, and they're going to buy iPhones. And I said, first of all, my Samsung Android is just as expensive as your sad iPhone. I'm an Android person myself. I said, first of all, this costs the same as your iPhone. So thing one, thanks a lot. Thing two, let's not make assumptions about who's got money and who doesn't have money and how they spend money. You, anybody can shop from you. You're a big company. There's lots of different things people can buy. I said, have you ever wondered how much more money you would make from Android users if you had a better Android app? And so the problem was they'd gotten themselves into a circle. We think our customers use Android. We'll make a better, I'm sorry, we think our customers use iPhone. We'll make a better iPhone app. Ooh, uh, so many iPhone sales. Ooh, make the iPhone app better. Wow, so many iPhone sales. So terrible Android app, not too many Android sales. Keep the Android app kind of terrible, not too many Android sales. You know, and meanwhile, they were probably missing an opportunity because they were just lazy and didn't want to spend the time and money to make a better app. But when they sliced the numbers differently, they found that the Android users were spending more and more often. And so I think that they really missed an opportunity. So I think, to me, startups paint themselves, and this wasn't a startup, this was a famous American company, but to me, it's all about critical thinking. It's all about making sure we keep asking questions, because if you didn't keep asking questions, you'd say, yeah, we don't have too many Android customers. It's not worth building a better app. There's just not that many of them. But with critical questions like, why aren't there more Android customers? Oh, our app is terrible? Um, and we don't update it as much? Okay, okay. Uh, well, let's take a look at this another way. So to me, critical thinking is all about asking tough questions and looking at things from more angles and then more tough questions. And I think if more people in companies did that, we would see very different products and we would hopefully see fewer failed startups. That was an amazing story because... Uh I mean, I don't think people would think about it that way, especially because even here in India, it's like, you know, we focus more on iPhone users. They are more likely to buy our product. But this is an entirely new angle, which I guess can go unnoticed very, very easily. So thanks yeah, remember, for that. If you assume that the numbers are the story, you're making a mistake. The numbers have a story, but what came before the story? You know, maybe we're not getting a lot of Android sales because the app is terrible. Hi, everybody. I have an Android phone. I'm the only one in the room on an Android phone. Let me show you what our app looks like. 
And then everyone's like, oh, crap. Yes, exactly. So the problem is sometimes people fall in love with numbers and they go, well, we have lots of iPhone users and very few Android users, so why make something better for the Android users? Well, what if you made something better for the Android users and then they all started using it and the numbers go up? You're making your own soup here. You know, you've caused you've caused the problem that you're you're claiming to I saw this in another company. Oh my god, quick story. You can edit this out if you want, but oh my god. I saw an e-commerce company. Um, they somehow decided that the most important thing on the page was going to be reviews. So they redesigned the page to highlight reviews more than they were highlighting the information about the product that was for sale. And they ran some sort of A-B test, and it looked like sales went up. And so they were like, oh, God, sales went up. So, like, this is obviously the right design. You know, push the description of the product off into a side column, make it really small, and just really highlight these reviews. And I actually saw an internal document they had that said, um, well, the description of the item is really long and difficult to read. Now, remember, they made it long and difficult to read. Once they pushed it into a side column, now if the description is long, yeah, it's in this, the column is really long and the, the, the description is wrapping. It would look very different if it had the full page size. So they wrote in this internal document like, um, well, now that the description looks really bad, you know, in this side column, it's probably best if people don't read it at all. So let's come up with a design where the description's even harder to see. And my response to this was, you caused the problem. People didn't want to read the description because you put it in a side column and you made it ugly. Now you're claiming, uh-oh, the description is ugly, so maybe it's better if people don't see it at all. Let's find a way to hide it even more. And my thought was, how about we show people the freaking description of the item they're trying to buy? And what we ended up finding was there were more complaints, there were more returns, because people weren't reading the description of the item. So they didn't fully understand what they were buying, which led to more dissatisfaction later. So congratulations, you made more sales. But what happened later? And that's why I wrote the article called um, Your Metrics Are Myopic. Because sometimes people are looking for the quick win. Hey, we made more sales. Cool. But did we follow the journey? Did we follow the progress? Are we getting more complaints? Are we getting more returns? Are we getting more problems because of something we caused? And in this case, the company had caused it, but they kept writing these internal documents that seemed to make it seem like, Oh, gosh, you know, don't fix the description. You know, the description is obviously a bad thing. Let's make sure nobody sees. Let's let's find a way to hide the description. Like, you can be the cause of problems that can just, I can't even think about someone doing that. And yet that happens. It's human nature, I guess. <laughs> yeah, someone felt good about that. But, you know. Uh, I think that, that th these are, this is where critical thinking comes in. Critical thinking would say, are we sure we want to hide the description? Is there a design that highlights some reviews but keeps the description in a logical place and makes it easy to read? Can we find balance? Does it have to really be 
one or the other or all or none or something like that. And, and I think these are, and critical thinking would also ask, what were the consequences or effects of this design? Okay, it made more sales, but then what happened? Uh-oh, there was higher dissatisfaction. Is this still the right layout for the page if it leads to greater dissatisfaction later? I would say no. And that's also very important because A-B testing is, I mean, in some ways it has also become synonymous to UX in many like companies. So that's a really important example right there to know how can usability and A-B testing- tested the hell out of this. Right, yeah. they A-B tested the hell out of it and they found this other layout created more sales, but then they didn't find the longer story. And, and that's why many people in UX don't use A-B testing because A-B testing says, which small change gave us the thing we wanted? Congratulations, you got the thing we wanted. Did the customer get what they wanted? Because if customers are now buying things they don't fully understand and they have to return them more, who's the winner? Who wins here? Did we really do the right thing? And so be careful of A-B testing when the metrics you're using are me-focused, when they are business-focused. Hey, did we make more sales? Great. This is, this is wonderful. Hold on. What happened in the customer's journey? What happened in the customer's experience or other people who are our uh, users or customers or partners? And that's, again, where critical thinking comes in. Someone has to be willing to say, hold on, we're not looking at the total picture. We're looking at a small piece of a picture for our own needs. We have to balance that. We have to balance the money we want to make with the overall experience that we want people to have. Again, like what kind of metrics you are using to measure what and take what kind of decisions that again is an entire ecosystem of decisions. Yeah, I mean, definitely usability testing is a better way to go and, and uh, than A-B testing because usability testing, you'll walk away going, ah, that's why that wasn't right. But A-B testing, B wins. Why? We don't know. So usability testing is a better choice um, if you have to pick one. But ultimately, I think that what I tell people is if you want to A-B test, that's fine. But first... Let's usability test. Let's make B the best B we can and, and get to know it better and see how customers react to it. Then we can iterate on it, make it a little bit better. Then if you want to put it out there. So I tell people, if you A-B test, A-B test for performance, don't A-B test for design or usability because the A-B test isn't going to tell you the things you need to make a better design. That's great there, like A-B test for performance. I mean, that should be uh, like, put it in put in gold and said that A-B test for performance, not for everything. <laughs> yeah, and especially in companies today. Maybe sort of a sandwich would work, usability, A-B, and then usability. I mean, you have to... We're doing that right now for a client. You know, we, we did a design, we did the usability test. It uh, We did an iteration after the usability test, and now they're running their A-B test, literally right now. And the A-B test has been running for a few weeks. And I have to tell you, the results aren't that strong. We really expected our design to do much better. Now, our design is doing a little better than the old design. So a little better is still good. That should make the company more money. And that's cool. But we had a meeting on Friday to take a closer look at our winning design and say, 
how can this be even better? And we thought about reordering some of the things on the page to make it a little bit more logical. It, it's a little less traditional for this industry, and that's why we're a little nervous to do it, but we shouldn't have been nervous. We should have gone for it. And so we, we gave it a little bit of a non-traditional order of things, but we believe it's a more logical approach for what we learned about users when we did our research, because we researched with 27 people and then usability tested with 12. So we wrote back to the company and we said, we've got a new design and it's just kind of a move around of this. And um, we'd like to try this one as well. You know, if you're, if you would be open to having your front end developers move some things around, you know, that would make an interesting ABC test. Let's see if this moved around thing happens to do better than the other stuff. But here's the hard part. This is a shopping website. And this is the page that tells you about the product. But the company wouldn't let us fix the cart problems, the checkout problems, some of the problems on the other pages. And we learned in our research, all of these problems make people leave the site. So we're making this page better, but the other pages are still the same. They're going to lose people. So we have to be very careful about what we measure because trying to measure some of the sales numbers the sales numbers might not skyrocket because we're still dumping them in the same bad cart and checkout. So that's where some of the A-B testing is a little tough and where people sometimes, again, they end up being very incremental. They say, well, we moved this button here on this page, so which one wins? Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That makes so much sense. Thank you, Debbie, for your time. And sure. It was amazing talking to you, getting to know your experiences, your insights, your stories. I mean, as I'm someone new in this field, I feel that curating my education, my own education through people like you is the best decision I can take. I mean, I tried boot camps and everything. That's another universe of discussion out another there. Episode. Yeah, <laughs> boot camps, design camps and everything. But I guess this is the best anyone out there could get. So thank you so much well, for your time. You. Yeah. Thanks. I thank you for for uh, inviting me on the show. Good luck with the show, and I hope that the listeners will please check out the Delta CX YouTube channel. And because uh, we're live, uh, you know, usually two to four times a week, I'll be live forty minutes from when you and I are recording this. Mm -hmm. And I'm now doing live um, lessons where I'm doing actual design work, and I'm thinking out loud, and I'm teaching people how I approach design. And I don't know of anybody else doing this right now. I wish more people did, but I hope people will come to the YouTube channel and just take advantage of all the free lessons that uh, we're offering. Yeah, that's one of the best uh, approaches you have. Like, you are very much in sync and in touch with your audience. I see your live and this thinking out loud thing. Like, everyone should check that out and see that how when someone says it out loud and articulate their thought process while they're doing something which they claim to be good at, then that is the real test. Like, are they actually good at it? Or right. before you invest your money you in, do the work. yeah, before you invest your money Thank in a boot camp or a university. So please check that out, especially if you are, you know, new in this field. That would really help. So thank you, thank you Debbie. It was wonderful. Yes, thanks for having me on, and good luck, everybody, in your CX and UX adventures. <laughs>